0: Good morning, everyone, Good morning. and happy Palm Sunday. It was, uh, well, before I before I go any further, I, I have an announcement that I want to make that will be more appropriate up front. Uh, after, after the message is over, if I could have the high schoolers and the junior hires join me down here, um, just right over here for a quick meeting, I would appreciate that. Um, I was about to say that it was 25 years ago, Palm Sunday, that I first set foot in Parkside. And, um, so, uh, I, of course, as a new, I was a new Christian, but I didn't know anything at all when I first came. And, um, because it was by the way, March 28th of 1992, 25 years ago that I first trusted Christ and uh, so i didn't know anything at all except the bare bones of the gospel and i would not have been able to repeat it to you uh, but i trusted christ and uh, came here with friends and and i had friends who were new christians also who were being baptized and so um, that's why i came they invited me for that and and little did i know what was what was to come but it was palm sunday and we were singing hosannas and uh, so that that was always I laugh at that now because that's not a word I had ever heard in my entire life. And my first day in church, that's what all the songs had to do with—hosannas and palm branches—and I, I didn't know what I'd gotten into. But I was a, uh, I was a pretty different person back then. I was 18 years old, and uh, was prone to all the things that 18-year-old boys are pr- prone to. And and here I was a brand new Christian and and uh, didn't know anything about the Bible or much about the Lord and. And uh, But I was I was coming to church and and I was being discipled and that's an important thing and and I was meeting weekly actually more than weekly I was meeting with uh, Bob Burroughs and was being discipled at that time and and um, so the Lord has changed my life a lot in the last 25 years and He still has a lot more to go <laughs> but He's uh, changed my life a lot one of the things that uh, that He's um, working to change in my life and in some ways this is completely resolved and in other ways not so much is that uh, I was relatively stubborn when I was 18, and that's all in the past now. (laughs) So it's a short message today. (laughs) No, that's not in the past. But in this particular way, I I drove a 1958 Chevy pickup, and the gas gauge didn't work. And so it guzzled gas, for one thing, and the way I drove it made it guzzle gas even more and the gas gauge didn't work and so what did i do what what would any responsible person do you know fill up you know early and often right no, because I, I was certain that I had it calculated in my brain exactly how far I could go, right? And so I would drive by the gas station on the way out of town. My parents lived 10 miles out of town, and so it was a little bit of a gamble every time I would leave, you know. <laughs> am I going to make it back to town on this tank of gas, or am I not? And so, But I was I was stubbornly committed to uh, the fact that, yes, I was going to make it back, and this will work out just fine. And so, um, And usually it worked out just fine, but then some days I'd be driving into town, and I would get this sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. Oh, I've miscalculated <laughs> and then, you know, and, and then I'd be sitting on the side of the road and, and, uh, walk into somebody's house. Of course we didn't have cell phones back then. And so I was, uh, paying the price for my stubbornness and I was late for school quite a bit and, and friends were frustrated at me and, and lots of people got to, you know, show me grace and mercy by providing a tank of gas or a can of gas or, or uh, whatever at random times. But I was uh relatively stubborn and, um, as I said, that was all in the past. So now I, I fill up early and often, and don't have any other stubbornness issues whatsoever. So uh, I asked Stephanie last night about uh, some examples of stubbornness in my life. Which, if, if you want, you know, to be entertained, just ask your spouse. Tell me, am I stubborn? What are some? Sto- what are the best stories of when I've been stubborn? And uh, she, gracious woman that she is, couldn't think of any. Any? She said, "You're you're very pliant, compliant." And uh, <laughs> So she she wanted me to tell stories about her family, but I decided not to do that. I'll tell stories on myself, but we're going to look at stubbornness today and we're going to see some of the uh, consequences of stubbornness. But before we go any further at all, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning and praise you. We lift up your name and and, uh, we declare that you are righteous, holy God, and merciful and gracious uh, to make it so that we can even come before you in prayer. You've made it so that we can stand before you in Christ. You've given us your word. And we praise you for that. And as we look into your word this morning, I pray that you would be lifted up. I pray that the truth would be spoken and that that truth would penetrate into our hearts and that you would do your work in us, in me, in each of us here, that you would do your work by your Holy Spirit. We submit to you. We look for what you have for us. And we pray for your blessing and that you would be honored here. In Jesus' name, amen. So turn to Exodus chapter 11. And, uh, we're going to cover just this one chapter to just this one chapter today. It's only 10 verses. Like I said, there's going to be a short sermon. And so, um, but to get a running start at our passage today, see, today is Palm Sunday, right? And so, um, you, you would think that I would be talking about the triumphal entry and, and all of that kind of stuff, but, but I'm, I'm a stickler. I'm relatively stubborn. And we had, uh, we had we get to uh, arrive at the passover next week on easter and that makes sense right resurrection sunday and we will hit the passover okay they were celebrating the passover at the time of the crucifixion of christ and so that all makes sense and and we are making our way there and so today in order to arrive at the passover next week where it makes the most sense we're going to uh, go through chapter 11 of exodus this week and um So rather than talking about the triumphal entry, rather than talking about the palm branches and all of that stuff that went on, we are going to talk about Exodus chapter 11. And in that way, we are going to set up the Passover because that comes next in the book of Exodus. And so... Uh, We're not really following the church calendar, as it were, per se, but we are following our trek through the book of Exodus, and and it's been quite a trek, all right? If you remember, uh, looking back in in, uh, chapter 5, we're going to kind of go back and get a running start to kind of bring ourselves up to where we are in chapter 11, so if you look back at... At chapter 5, you remember that Moses first presented himself to, to Pharaoh back there in, in chapter 5 and, and verse 1. And uh, he, he, he presented himself with God's message to Pharaoh, let my people go. Right? Very simple message, let my people go. And then if you will glance through chapter 5, you will see how well that went. That did not go well. For the people of Israel, because in response to this message from God to let my people go, Pharaoh imposed even heavier burdens on the people. They were making brick, and he said, you've got to keep making the same quantity of bricks, right? But now you have to go scavenge and scrounge for your own straw to, to make it work. I'm not going to provide that for you anymore. So that perk is gone, and so they were having to uh, meet the same quota, um, and, and so life got even more difficult. And so the Israelites were were so beaten down by this whole process, by the increased work and, and everything from Pharaoh, that they actually turned on Moses and they laid the blame for their suffering at his feet. And uh, and they did so because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And so that's that's what had been going on. That That's Moses bringing the message to Pharaoh uh, from God to let my people go. But God was... Uh, he, he sent Moses back to Pharaoh with the same message: "Let my people go." But this time, there was there were teeth in the message, right? There were some added incentives, and so we have the whole plagues uh, uh, scenario that that we uh, that, that Woody took us through in the last couple of weeks, right? First, um, God turned the Nile River into blood, right? Now, River was relatively important in Egypt. And then came the infestation of frogs. And then was a terrible swarm of gnats. And then flies. And then the death of Egypt's livestock, right? And then there were these boils breaking out on man and beast. And then there was hail, a horrible hailstorm with fire that, that destroyed all kinds of things. And did you notice, going through that one, that the Egyptians, some of them actually took note and they brought their cattle in. And they sheltered their cattle, knowing that uh, that this storm was coming because... It seems like they might have been beginning to learn, right? And so they were starting to pick up on the direction that things were going. And after that came the came the, the plague of locusts, riding e- eating everything in their path. And then finally there was darkness so deep that it could be felt. I, I've never felt that kind of darkness, I don't think, before. Darkness so deep it could be felt. And it lasted three days. And so those are the first of the nine, uh, first nine of the ten plagues that have been brought Uh, against pharaoh and against his people that I, i wouldn't want to live through that that's bad news that they've gone through and and so some questions arise why won't they just let israel go free you know have you not been convinced yet how long can this go on is pharaoh just going to continue in his hardness of heart forever and how many more warnings will be given and how many more warnings will go unheeded And so that's the context. That brings us up to speed so that starting in uh, chapter 11, I'm just going to read that chapter to us. So with all of that background in mind, we read in 11.1, the Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great outcry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So that's our chapter that we have today. And, And thinking about how to understand how to preach our way through this chapter, I discarded several ideas before I decided what I want to do is just look at a uh, a few observations from this chapter. Just some observations from this chapter. Woody gave a great message last week on uh, the theme of Pharaoh's hard heart. And it's a theme that runs very strong through all of these chapters in the book of Exodus. And the question is, Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Who truly hardened Pharaoh's heart? Did God do it? Or did Pharaoh? And the answer is yes. They both did. Woody pointed out last week that sometimes Exodus says that God did it. Sometimes it says that Pharaoh did it. And sometimes it just says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Without ascribing who the person was who did it. But the truth is, Pharaoh truly hardened his own heart. If the question is who ultimately hardened Pharaoh's heart, then the answer is that the Lord did. And the reason is because the Lord is the only ultimate being that there is. The only one who is in no way contingent upon another. God truly and ultimately hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, if it seems like that topic of of God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh's hard heart has come up a lot uh, through the book of Exodus, that's that's because it, it has. It's a it's a major theme, particularly through these early chapters of the book of Exodus, and really, it it sort of centers in all of the Bible. I don't know of anywhere else in the Bible that focuses so much on uh, on God's relationship to the hardness of heart of man. And God hardening Pharaoh's heart and God hardening a human. I don't know of anywhere else in the Bible that talks about it as much as this section through the book of Exodus. And so that's why we've dwelt on it uh, for a long time. That's why it keeps coming up. And one of the reasons we chose to preach through the book of Exodus in the first place was to examine what the Bible says about God's sovereignty. What it really means. Exodus delves into God's sovereignty, and not just his sovereignty, but really who God really is in ways that God intends to be foundational for us in our, in our understanding of who God is and how to relate to him. And in walking through this amazing book, we've, uh, we've touched on topics and delved into topics that are far deeper probably than ones that we're used to, to uh, wrestling with. And frankly, as as a preacher and and teacher, I don't think I've ever preached or taught on more difficult topics. But these are crucial. These are crucial topics. We're talking about the true nature of of who God is in his self-existence. He's not contingent upon another. And in his self-determination and freedom, he is the only one who's self-determined. God is the only being who is truly and utterly and finally and ultimately free. But rather than delve into those topics again, Woody did a great job last week, we've talked about it before, rather than, than dive into that again, though it would be worth our time, and though it would be worth long study and multiple sermons and series and for us to think about for a long time, but rather than do that, I just want to notice two things from that statement in verse 10, the way he concludes there. He says, uh, the, the, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. First of all, what, what I want to notice is that God has been behind this showdown from the beginning. It's not that Moses failed to convince Pharaoh. Like God gave Moses a job and and Moses bungled it. That's not what's happening. I mean, think about if you were Moses, wouldn't you be tempted to wonder how have things gotten so out of hand? I mean, the task I was given was a big one, but, it, you know, it was relatively straightforward. And look what it's turned into. Hailstorms with fire and darkness that you can feel and all kinds of stuff. Where did I go wrong? The plan hasn't got off, gone off the rails. God is behind it and has been from the beginning. The second fact that I want to call our attention to is the fact that um, God is behind this whole showdown. And that should increase Moses and the Israelites' confidence that in the end, God will accomplish his good purpose. He will actually deliver his children. See, it's not as if God had proposed a plan and then they pursued it and whether Moses messed it up or, or whether Pharaoh got in the way or whatever, now God's going to have to kind of patch the job up after the fact to see if he could bring history back around to the point of delivering his people. That's not the case at all. Exodus presents very clearly to us that from the beginning and through every moment, God has been in charge and that means he will accomplish his purpose in the end. He doesn't have to patch anything up. He doesn't have to make up for Moses' mistakes. He doesn't have to somehow figure out how he's going to overcome stubborn Pharaoh. Church, we have seen God's nature revealed to us in powerful ways in God's dealing with Pharaoh. And even if we don't understand what it all means, yet let us draw this comfort and truth for our lives that God has all the power and ability and and will and position and right to accomplish His good purpose in your life. No matter what it may feel like right now. That's the encouragement I draw from this. God really is in control. We just don't often get to see everything peeled back as clearly as we, as we have it here in the book of Exodus. But let's not, let's not be distracted or, or, or even frustrated by the theology or, or any of that. Let's be encouraged by the theology that God really is on the throne and Pharaoh's not. God will get you there. God will accomplish his purpose in your life. Second of all, whose is the firstborn? Look at verses 4 and 5. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Those are very hard words. Those are very hard words. But whose is the firstborn? In the ancient Near East... Which included Egypt and included Israel. The firstborn son was a very important figure. In Israel, the firstborn was entitled to double inheritance. So you divide up, you know, amongst all your children, the inheritance. Which is kind of funny because, with, <laughs> I've got six kids, so, and not not a lot of inheritance. So <laughs> two bucks for you, Brianna. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but uh, they they were they were given a uh, double inheritance, right? And uh, so if each child was was allotted a single inheritance except for the firstborn son, boom, he got a double inheritance, right? So it a very special, which kind of makes sense uh, when you think back on Genesis chapter 25 and you think about Esau and Jacob, right? When firstborn Esau foolishly sold his birthright to his younger brother Jacob for dinner. What did he sell? He sold his birthright. A double portion for dinner right and the firstborn son was also entitled to his father's blessing remember genesis 27 again jacob and esau right when the younger jacob duped his father into giving the blessing due his firstborn uh, uh, brother right he gave got it he got it instead he duped his dad out of it right and that was a blessing that was supposed to be reserved for the firstborn as a very special thing and he came in and he and he tricked his dad and took it and you remember the conversation between esau and 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 his dad afterwards sorry i can't take it back right it's a special thing firstborn sons could also expect other types of preferential treatment the hopes of the family rested with him and if the father was the king then he would be the presumptive heir the throne right being a firstborn particularly a firstborn son was a big deal in this part of the world, right? And so this puts a finer point on chapter 4 in verse 22, which we talked about earlier. Flip back there real quick. Exodus chapter 4 in verse 22. This conversation about firstborns has already been started. This isn't new. Chapter 4 in verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Verse 23, And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And so the conversation about whose is the firstborn has already been started. And now it makes more sense when you think about what a firstborn, what what was involved in being a firstborn. There's a lot at stake when you're dealing with firstborn sons. And the Lord is playing for keeps with Pharaoh. He is not messing around. But there's another layer to this as well. See, the question is, who has the right to the firstborn? Who has the right? Well, in that part of the world, deity had right to the firstborn. Deity had right to the firstborn. And so Yahweh's ultimatum to Pharaoh is not only about their respective firstborn sons and the threat that Pharaoh and Egypt were to God's firstborn son, Israel. At issue was also the question, who is truly deity? Is it Pharaoh Or is it Yahweh? So there's another layer. There's something else going on here. And in this tenth plague, the death of Egypt's firstborn sons, from Pharaoh's son all the way down to the lowest maids, God will totally and finally protect and deliver his own son and will also powerfully and spectacularly demonstrate that he alone is the Lord, the one true God. So you have a wrestling match to the death over firstborn sons, because the firstborn son was crucial and Israel is God's firstborn son. And who has that right? Who has the right to the son? Only deity does. And so you have a wrestling match over that topic as well. And so when we read those verses right there in the middle of chapter 11, it's sad. It is sad and scary. The stakes are, are higher than I can comprehend. But whose is the firstborn? Third observation I want to point out. At, the attack is on Pharaoh. Do you see there in verse five? Middle part there, first five. So the firstborn, every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne on down. The attack is on him explicitly. It's on him particularly. See, in the ninth plague, remember what the ninth plague was? It was a darkness that you could feel. It lasted three days, right? It was a big deal. What was going on there? Well, when you think about the fact that the sun was a God, you have you have God demonstrating Himself. You have the God of Israel, the one true God Yahweh, demonstrating Himself to be sovereign even over the so-called sun god by making it so he can't even show his face for three days in his own land. How humiliated do you think he must have been, the sun god, if he really existed? But there's more to it than that. In Egyptian theology and Egyptian mythology, the sun, the sun god was Pharaoh's father. The way they looked at things, Pharaoh was deity, the sun god was deity, and the sun god was Pharaoh's father. And so the ninth plague, rather than just being some attack on the, the theology of Egypt or whatever, was an attack, certainly on the theology of Egypt, but was an attack on Pharaoh's father. Do you think he took it personally? Maybe more personally than the gnats? You know, I think so. It was an attack on his father. And so uh, god, was, god was putting the sun god and Pharaoh's father in his place in that ninth plague. He took it very personally, I'm sure, as an attack on his household. And now, enter the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. With all the things that we've looked at regarding the firstborn, the value of the firstborn, the hopes placed in the firstborn, and all that stuff, but the Lord makes a point in verse 5 of including Pharaoh and even his firstborn. He could have just said everybody in the land. That would have been bad enough and and probably would have included, you know, Pharaoh's son also. But God ups the ante and and says, oh, yeah, remember remember when I went after your dad with the whole three days of darkness? Yeah, now I'm going after the firstborn. From, From your firstborn, Pharaoh, all the way down. So Pharaoh's included. The attack is on him you see, the, the uh, Pharaoh has been attacking the children of Israel. Egypt has been attacking the, the children of Israel, God's children, God's family, this whole time. And so now Yahweh is going after Pharaoh's family. It's an attack on him. It goes further. In Egypt, I'm quoting here from uh, uh, from the Bible background commentary on the Old Testament. In Egypt, Pharaoh was considered a deity. And this last plague is directed at him. In the ninth plague, his father, the sun god, was defeated. And now his son, presumably the heir to the throne, will be slaughtered. This is a blow to Pharaoh's person, his kingship, and his divinity. It's a very dangerous thing to make yourself an enemy of God. Pharaoh's about to learn that lesson the hard way and and at an unimaginable cost. It's dangerous to make yourself an enemy of God. And there are people walking around that we see every day who are enemies of God. In fact, you may see them in the mirror. According to Romans 5.10, anyone who has not been reconciled to God is God's enemy. Or another way of putting it, dead in your trespasses and sins. So is that you? Have you been reconciled to God by the death of His Son? Or do you remain in your lost state? Do you remain in your enmity with God? Look at how God systematically destroys the most powerful man on earth, the most powerful nation on earth. You don't want to remain the object of God's wrath. Look at Pharaoh and learn from him. Fourthly, The final plague. The final plague for the Egyptians was terrible. This tenth one will be the final one. The death of every firstborn son. And I cannot imagine their heart-rending grief as every home experienced loss. Even if you were a newlywed couple or didn't have children of your own, you still had animals you could lose, and so God would, by, by default, take from your your herds, from your flock, from your livestock. But I I can't imagine what they must have felt. I can't imagine that weight of helplessness. What must the grief have sounded like? He says in in verse 6, There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. That's bad. That's grief all the way. When that plague is done, Egypt will have no will left. Their future has been destroyed. If, if, if Egypt was the most powerful nation on earth, God has just decimated them for at least a generation. He didn't just win a victory. For at least a generation, they would have been debilitated. Imagine all those firstborn sons. Imagine all that, all that confusion. Imagine all that hope, all that grief, all that having been utterly humiliated because of this competition that Pharaoh was having with God. When the plague is done, Egypt will have no will left. They will tell Moses and Israel to leave the land. This final plague will finally set the people of Israel free. I can't imagine anything worse than this final plague. But the Bible says that the final plague for God's enemies will be worse. Unimaginably worse. One passage. I'm just going to read one passage and it will help us see that. This is from Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 through 15. And the devil who had received them, deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire. And sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence. Earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the final plague. That's the true final plague. But observation number five. That, that final plague is scary to me and, and powerful, and it looms in my mind. It's motivating to me, and it's a huge thing, but it is not as scary as this fifth point. No more warnings. No more warnings. Chapter 11 is, is a little bit different than the others. We don't have an explicit warning here as in a way to avoid this thing. He's not saying, let my people go. If you don't let my people go, this is going to be the result. He comes and he says, this is what is next. He doesn't say, here's the back door. Here's the way out. Here's how you can escape this. I'm giving you one more chance. It's not in there. I looked. He tells him what's coming next, period. And that is frightening to me. What we do have, we don't have a warning, like a way to get out of it. What we do have is a statement that judgment is coming and what it will be like. That fact is is the most alarming fact to me about this whole chapter. And it's an alarming chapter. Judgment has become inevitable. God had given numerous previous warnings. Let my people go or else. Let my people go or else I'm going to bring this plague on you. Pharaoh wouldn't do it, so here comes the plague. Let my people go or else. Pharaoh wouldn't do it, so here comes the plague. Numerous warnings had been given. How many, how many warnings did Pharaoh expect? How many times do you have to lose in the face of a, a, a con- conflict like that and, and you think you're going to get more warnings? How many, how many warnings do we expect? Maybe you're hearing your last warning right now. That's what struck me about this chapter. This might be your last warning. You're not, you're not guaranteed a certain number of warnings. And it's the mercy of God that you receive any warning. And this might be your last. You may be, maybe you've heard the gospel a hundred times. that warning you have no guarantee that you will ever hear it again you have no guarantee that you will ever be warned again do not leave this building today without being reconciled to god through jesus you have no guarantee this might be the last one And aren't you glad that we are not in chapter 11? I praise the Lord that I'm not in chapter 11. This is, this is awful news of judgment. And we read from, from Revelation chapter 20, uh, we read about, about judgment. The judgment that's coming, and that judgment is inevitable. But aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God gave us a way out of that? I'm glad for that, that I'm not here that I'm not in chapter 11. He has told us to flee the wrath to come, and he has told us how to flee the wrath to come. And I'll read from a couple of verses in the New Testament, and then I'll be done. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God gives us a warning and you may never receive another. So this is where I want to end this morning because this passage scared me. And I'm not trying to scare you, but I want to point you to it. And it may be that there are, there are some who have, who have been coming, have been listening, have been hearing. And have remained at enmity with God, have remained dead in your trespasses and sins. Maybe you've not ever been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. Now is that time. And so after I'm done praying, Mark and Carol Robertson are going to be up here in the front, and they're going to they're going to be praying with whoever uh, wants to come and pray with them. And uh, and if if you want to talk to me, you can do that. Mark and Carol can point you to the Lord. They can pray for you for many other things. They can point you to the Lord. And so that's an opportunity that we have right up here. And as soon as I'm done with my meeting with uh, middle schoolers and the, and the high schoolers, then I, I can uh, join you as well. But I wonder what Pharaoh thought. Was he counting on just one more warning? Don't count on just one more warning. You have one now. Respond to it. Let's pray. Father, this chapter scares me. It scares me about death. It scares me about your judgment. It scares me about getting to the point where I have uh, I've heard my last warning. Maybe not even just regarding salvation. I, maybe I've heard my last warning regarding some sin or some pattern in my life. And So, Lord, I, I want to uh, repent today. I want to come to you and seek you when you may be found. Not, not later on when it's too late. And so I, I pray that you would be merciful on us. I pray that you would be merciful on us Christians, that maybe we've been walking in some sin, or we've been uh, entertaining some, uh, some sinful thought or lifestyle, and and concealing it, or uh, been hard-hearted towards you in some way. I pray that that we would repent and run to you right now. That we would, uh, we would lay ourselves before you, confess our sin, and seek forgiveness of Christ. That we would, um, that we would know uh, healed uh, fellowship with you. And for, for any in the room who do not know you, who are still enemies of yours because of the choices they've made in their lives and because of their, their sin, who, who remain dead in their trespasses and sins, whose, whose hearts are like stone, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would run to you and repent right now because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that they would come to know you this morning without ever leaving the building, That they would that they would do that with you this morning right now. I pray that you would save souls. Father, this passage scares me and I thank you. I thank you that there is forgiveness in Christ and we are looking to Resurrection Sunday next week and we will have very great encouragement and there, there are uh, wonderful things to behold in, in uh, looking at Passover and looking at the offering that you've made, the way you've provided for us in Christ. And we look forward to that. But this passage is dark. Show us the light of Christ, I pray. Father, we love you and we trust you and we want to walk with you and we want to show you to people around us. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.